Greetings. My name is Louis Molina, and I'm the host of the Life Pro podcast. Today's guest is Jeremy Simeon. Jeremy is an avid cigar smoker. He's also an art collector, and he's a historian of Louisiana Creole culture. We hope you find today's conversation insightful. So thanks for coming today, man. Oh, I appreciate you yeah. having me. Yeah. And, and I love this new location. It is so chill, and it's so... Well, it's just so refreshing to see a place dedicated to cigars and, uh, you know, in Baton Rouge. And I think it's on par with uh, well, locations anywhere in the United States is as good, as nice, and beautiful. So. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, we're so, cigar nerds, so we really took a lot of time in the build-out. But I love that. I love that I can come here and totally uh, not kind of feel intimidated and ask you all these questions and you don't see any condescension. You see, you, you see right. this kind of like passion, like, yeah, you know what? I'm like, what? And I get excited. Yeah, we're yeah. excited. And we're smoking cigars. Yep. And we're excited. Yep. And I'm excited to come back. Well, so, no, that's great hearing that. And yeah. I think a lot of that was because of my experiences when I first started smoking. I was 18, I was already like in it. And when I would travel the country, I would get the, you know, just the, the poor treatment, I guess, because. Young. The attendants assumed, oh, he's a young kid. He doesn't have money. I'm not going to spend time with him. So, like, I remember that. And so I'm trying to do the opposite of being more welcoming, not having a, you know, elitist attitude, whether you're a beginner or expert. We don't care. We'll, we'll, we'll talk cigars with you. So, I think that's the approach that um, anybody who's trying to share something has to have. So even as a person like me who's an antique dealer or, excuse me, antique collector, I shouldn't say dealer because I don't deal but an antique collector and a historian, you know, I think in the past there's always been this kind of pretentious, like, I collect antiques, I wear tweed, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, there's an intimidation uh, factor. Back, yeah. And and it turn all it's turns people off, and that's the last thing we need. In order for you know to pass something on, we have to inspire people to take an interest, and we can't turn them off. And I think that's really what's happened in American antiques. And, uh, and to a degree, some of our history is that we didn't engage. And when I say we, I don't mean me, but the generation before me did not engage with young people in a manner that was inviting. And so, mm. yeah, it's one of those things. But we're going to try to fix that. Yeah. We're about to do a crossover. Yeah. Cigar, Cigars. History. And, yep. Material New culture. Orleans. Yeah, everything. New Orleans. So Louisiana. with that, we're, we'll start with a cigar. So may, okay. may I offer you a... Oh, please. Yeah, cigar there. So we got two choices. Okay. Uh, you can have them both. But so I was trying to think what I like to do is try to match cigar with my guest. Okay. Right. So I know that you're a big Fuente guy and a big Davidoff guy. I am. Yep. So the Casa Cuba is made by Fuente. Okay. So I figured you can smoke that or, or, or that or this next one. So the other one is a Tatuaje Black and it's the Britannica's Extra. If you look at the shape, it's kind of a unique shape. It's a. Uh, Kind of tapers slightly at the foot, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not a true Parejo, which Parejos are the straight-sided cigars. So this this would be considered like a, a, a overall figurado, but um, this, they call this size a Britannica, Britannica's Extra. Now, the wrapper, the reason I chose this, the wrapper is a Criollo wrapper. Okay. So in Spanish, Criollo means Creole right. or mix. So based on like the, the Creole art and the history 
I felt it was appropriate. We need a, a, a Criollo cigar for. for I think a, that makes sense. So we're gonna smoke this. Whatever you want. I think. Whatever. I, I yeah, think maybe we'll do that one. I know, but I, I, I don't. I don't remember if you like Tatuai or if you. Smoked I do it. like okay. Tatuai. Okay. I've had some great ones. I've never had a bad one, but I remember. Uh, I don't remember exactly which one, but I remember y'all turned me on to them the first time I ever tried it, and I was like, "What was that one?" They're like, "Y'all like, oh, that one was limited, man. You just yeah, gonna yeah. have to." Like that's that's the only bad thing. It's like you get excited about some of these, uh, you know, limited uh, runs or whatever, and then you go looking for them and they're gone. Yeah, I know, I know. But oh well, that's what makes it exciting. You're looking, you're chasing that next one, right? That's right. That's so, right. Okay. So after you, we got the cigar okay, cool. cutter and lighter. Okay. So we'll get on with the uh, the the cigar prepping right now before we jump in. Yeah, so we're, that's uh, the double blade cutter for uh, from Vesel. We like this one. All right, and here's your lighter. This oh, is man. a, a Calibri. So you just, uh, yeah, it's kind of cool. You just push it right here. It's a triple, triple. See, I would injure top. myself with something like this. I know. You know I kind of <laughs> keep it real simple and antiquated. Or if uh, you want um, the matches, we got that too. So no, whatever you want to no, do. Not that simple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I fight with matches too. So let's see. Yeah, I think I'll do the matches because uh, I do I do like a torch lighter when I'm outside, but if it were my choice, I'd kind of go old school. I think there's advantages to soft flame, right? Right, right, for sure. So, yeah, I think, I think don't quote me, now i got to look up. I believe that this Tatuaje Black mm -hmm. label, this particular size was like a limited offering. To talking about, I know, <laughs> he tells me I know, in case I love it. I know, it's like, uh, yeah, but you know, you, you might be able to find it again. We try to, <laughs> we try to specify that to our customers when we offer them a cigar like that. Like, look, if you like it, we're not trying to upsell you. Just know that it's a limited run. Load up, so man. Keep, yeah, load yeah. up now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. Yeah, we've seen it where, just like you described, people fall in love with a particular cigar, and oh, I can't get it. She's, it yeah, was a limited edition. It's gone. I know. Like, yeah, I understand that. So, so yeah, just uh, hope you enjoy the cigar. Yeah, Tatua is one of my personal favorite companies. I'm definitely a, a geek when it comes to the company. But anyway, so uh, enjoy the cigar. We'll, we'll go back to your thoughts on that a little later, but let's just jump right in. So you mentioned Creole, your historian. Yes. What can you tell me about the Creole life? What, what does that mean for people, especially who don't live in Louisiana? Here? So yeah. the word Creole, I did a video on it recently, and it was it's it's a complicated and contested word. Um, but in the context that we'll probably I'll be using mostly tonight, we're going to be talking about Louisiana Creoles. And when I'm referring to Creoles, I'm not necessarily referring to uh, the race of the individual, but I'm referring to their colonial roots in Louisiana. So you mentioned that uh, Criollo rapper, yeah. okay, obviously that's Spanish, and I think uh, the original word uh, was Portuguese and came mm. from Criere, which means something that is created. So oh. something that's not indigenous, but something that was made. Okay. So in a colonial setting, a colonial place like colonial Louisiana or Saint-Domingue, which is uh, you know present-day Haiti or somewhere like that, a Creole is something that was not indigenous, but was made or born there. So a horse born in the colony, that's a Creole horse. Oh, okay. Okay, and an indigenous person, 
and their offspring with a uh, person who had come from either another colony or from the mainland. That child was a Creole because it was something created there. Even though it had indigenous parts, it was something new as an act of fusion. So that's what we're talking about. When I say the word Creole, I'm typically referring to Louisiana Creoles because the word is used all over. And sometimes the word is even derogatory. Uh, In certain places, it's my understanding, and uh, Brazil, it's not a great word to be called a Creole. Hmm. Um, Some people would take offense to that. And so it's it, more of a racial epithet for, it can, for some? It can be. And okay. it, I, I, I would imagine, like everything, it depends who's saying and how they're saying it. Just kind of like in Spanish, formal, you, versus, you know, uh, tu, or yeah, something. Usted, usted. the formal versus tu, the, the informal you. Right, which can be taken as high-handed or something like that. And so can mm-hmm. uh, impose racial or, I guess, uh, uh, I won't say... Well, yeah, I'll say a cultural identity, an imposed cultural identity can also be something that's offensive. But when I talk about Creoles, a lot of times I am referring to these so-called Creoles of color. And these Creoles of color are people of mixed African ancestry um, who have colonial roots in Louisiana. And these people, the, the variant degrees, some have well, complete, almost complete African ancestry, 90%, 95%, 100%, whatever. Some have very little because of mixture, 5%, whatever. Yeah. Um, but what, what they have is this shared fusion of culture, and that is what Creole is. And that is uh, a culmination of these people coming together, um, sometimes not always by choice. There was for- forced immigrants here, as we know, mm-hmm. uh, because of the transatlantic slave trade um, and other, uh, and other uh, exiles, the Acadians. Um, but this 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 cultural fusion is known as Creole. So we see the indigenous people, we see the Africans living in close proximity, we see the Acadians, and we see these Europeans pouring in. And that culture that they made, that language that they began to speak, took on certain uh, words uh, that were indigenous in origin, and that is Creole. Okay. So, so because I remember hearing years ago, and I guess the word Creole, it just depends what you're talking about, but I understood it to be, you know, I thought it was African-American primarily. But then I heard someone told me that the, I guess the original Creole, if there is such a thing, was the descendant or offspring of the Spanish and French that came over here in Louisiana. Is that right? Is there truth to that or is that? <laughs> there's, some, there's some truth that that is written in books. And that is written in the end of the 19th century when a lot of revisionist history uh, came about. Mm. And... Uh, but I think the consensus would be today that a Creole is a self-identified person with colonial roots in Louisiana. Okay. So okay. if you have ancestry here pre-1803, pre-Louisiana Purchase, I would say that you were Creole. Creoles typically were Catholic, typically typically French-speaking. And the reason is is not just because they happen to be. It's because that's who was allowed into the colony. <laughs> originally, oh. originally, you had to be Catholic, even uh, enslaved people were baptized, were required to be baptized. Mm. And French was the primary language, even when the Spanish came, which they controlled Louisiana from, what, 1763 to about 1803 when the sale took place. Um, they always make a joke. Historians say that the children of the Spanish never spoke a word of Spanish. They quickly assimilated into this greater mm. Creole, but more French Creole world. Yeah. So with the Louisiana Creoles, 
I think of when I hear Creole, I grew up in Metairie. Mm-hmm. I think about like uh, like in in New Orleans, right? There, there's a Creole Seventh Ward. Yeah, um, yeah, that area. But when I moved to Baton Rouge, I, I quickly learned there are other Creoles like in um, a parish uh, right west of here. Uh, well, I forget. Sure, Point Capi. Yeah, Point Capi. So yeah. there's Point Capi. There's Saint Landry Parish, and there's uh, Natchitoches. So what what these were were these were agricultural outposts. So when we look at the history of Louisiana, um, obviously Natchitoches was established earliest, and then New Orleans. And then we have kind of the St. Landry Parish, the Opelousas, and all of that. And those were areas where I call the country creoles or the prairie creoles. These people were agricultural-based. These would have been plantations. It's a dirty word, and it doesn't always mean enslaved workers, but, it, but rather a place where things are grown, you know, agricultural base. And that would have been where they were doing most of that. New Orleans was the city. Okay. So many of these people who were in St. Landry Parish— uh, in Opelousas, like some of my family, would have worked, 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 and then taking, taken a very nice vacation during the social season, which would have been uh, the end of the growing season if you were in sugarcane or whatever. And uh, you would have gone Christmas, then you would have celebrated New Year's, and then, of course, Mardi Gras. And you would have, rent, if you were free and able, you would have uh, rented rooms in New Orleans, and that's when you would have done your shopping. That's when you would have done your socializing with your country, or your not, excuse me, your city cousins. Probably where you would have learned a little more about fine tobaccos instead of that funky stuff you were growing back home, smoking in pipes. Um, and uh, that's where you would have conducted trade. So, hey, look, I'm selling my crop. This is what I need to do here and here. This is where you would have bought new things. So, all of these people were connected. All of these people essentially were related. I think if you have colonial roots in Louisiana, chances are you are interconnected by, very, I mean, high probably. Yeah, there are a lot of family names that are very common within, within allied the Allied families. Allied families, yeah. Allied oh, family? That's what they call allied families. You see the same four or five family names oh. uh, in, you know, 18th century, and that that's for Creoles of color and white Creoles. Oh. And uh, so. Yeah. I always found it fascinating, uh, just the, the whole history. So I remember, have you ever read the book Lafitte by, I think the, the author's name was Lyle Saxon? Did you hear that eye roll? No, I haven't, but I, I, I have my own thoughts on Lyle Saxon, but I want to hear what you're talking oh, about. Oh, okay. Well, I want to learn about that. But I, well, <laughs> So I bring that up because I remember there was an excerpt where they would talk about Lafitte and his brother attending these, these balls. I think they were called quadroon balls? Yeah, so, but they made it seem like to me, and maybe I misinterpreted, but it was like an elegant, like high social, like scene, and it was an honor to be there. Can you give me insight into that? What, I can what? totally give you insight into that. So the, the approach today and the the perspective today by most serious historians is that quadroon balls did not actually happen in the way that they are presented. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> Creoles of color; these are the people of mixed ancestry. If, if we look at most of the writings of the uh, early 20th century or late 19th century, I mentioned this a little earlier, we had a lot of interlopers and we had a lot of Anglos who came to Louisiana and sensationalized things such as this thing called plusage or quadrant balls. And basically they pitched quadrant balls as like a meat market where el- eligible white suitors could go pick out women of color. But there's a couple of misconceptions about that. Because, right, so they would they would find a woman of color and they would set up a deal supposedly with her mother and, 
and then set her up in a shop in the, or in a house in the Marigny. That's what they claim, but it doesn't really make sense. And I'll tell you why it doesn't make sense. We know for a fact that there was the existence of these people called free men of color. They are rarely written about in these historical accounts, but they are found all over in actual historical archives. We, we're going to probably talk about one today uh, who is a, a very successful cigar merchant, Georges Alcès or Alcès, I don't know. Uh, what the actual pronunciation of the last name was. Yeah, but sure uh, free man of color, okay, eligible uh, man who could who was up there with anybody in the city. And there were other men. There was a gentleman named Philippe Lecoste, who was one of the richest men in the city, real estate developers. There's the Sulis. There's uh, all of these really just amazing figures who were able to do all these incredible things. I mean, these free men of color were um, mathematicians, they were uh, doctors, Dr. Louis Rudnay, uh, Charles Rudnay. Um, we, we, see, we see all of these men occupying just top-tier positions. So why would they auction off their daughters, their sisters, to, to white men at this quadrant ball? They wouldn't. Yeah. But you never hear about free men of color, and you always hear, oh, they were sent to France and they disappeared, and then presumably all women of color who had relationships with white men had g- women had girls, and so it's part of this narrative that is made to. Um, I know this is dark. This kind of deep conversation. Yeah. I wasn't. Try- I was trying to smoke a cigar. Yeah, I know. You know, but all of these narratives are really uh, an attempt to kind of belittle um, the achievements of these free people of color, and it was out of racism. And Lyle Saxon is particularly guilty of this. He and his partner. Uh, Francois Mignon, whose name is really not Francois Mignon, the guy was not French at all, um, lived at Melrose Plantation in Natchitoches. And Melrose Plantation was owned by a family of color called the Metoyers or the Metoyers. And so um, they they were landowners and prominent uh, in sugarcane, owned shops in New Orleans. Fortunately, they had some trouble after the 1837, um, almost as Basically, a recession, 1837, real estate bubble. Oh. Um, but it's ironic uh, because they actually set up shop there uh, during this kind of WPA era and uh, it wrote a lot of bad stuff. And, uh, you know, just it, just a lot of it's been dismissed. And it's entertaining and it's interesting, but it reads like Gone with the Wind. Oh. I mean, it looks like good glorifying on this. the antebellum exactly. thing. When exactly. it has its, its dark. Fabulous New Orleans. Um, you know, let's not look at the dark, you know, the mm-hmm. yeah, the shackles over there. Let's not look at the reality of the situation. So, yeah. I mean, but whatever it is, it is, it is what it is. But, yes, we're still fighting with these narratives that are complicated and problematic that try to overshadow the achievements of these people. And their achievements were significant and, and really fascinating. Mm-hmm. I had no clue about that. So, I mean, for me, per- I'm sure most people, we want to know what the real history is, right? And so, man, it's just, it's, it's really eye-opening. Like, and, But, see, I, I've always, like, growing up in New Orleans, knew that there were significant contributors from the Creole society, right. the group, to, for New Orleans. But I guess it's not really, really, really uh, emphasized, even today, or... I think it's only emphasized because the word Creole, too, took on a negative stigma, and it's associated with colorism. 
in uh, the black community. And I think the word is kind of kind of fell out of fashion after the civil rights movement, uh, the second mm. civil rights movement, because the first civil rights movement happened in New Orleans, and it was uh, started by Creoles of color. And this was, of course, uh, what would become Plessy versus Ferguson. This is uh, the Economie de Citoyens, this group who basically kicked up. And I'm sorry if this is too too much depth. No, no, no. Guys, no, I, like, but, I like hearing that. But yeah. the first civil rights, or an early, I shouldn't say the first because I don't want to trivialize the, the, the successful civil rights movement. But the earliest efforts of civil rights occurred in New Orleans, Louisiana, and were led by men of color, previously free men of color, um, after Reconstruction, the foiling of Reconstruction. And the Reconstruction was that 13-year period after the Civil War where they said, we're going to make everything great again. Sorry, that wasn't a dig at Trump for any of (laughs) y'all about to turn off. Um, But what it was is it was this period that was supposed to introduce this utopian new era where the black man would have equality. And we had this government uh, comprised of people of color, people of African descent, and white people. And uh, it was working for a while. And (laughs) then the federal government decided to eventually remove federal troops out of New Orleans. And it went to hell after that. And Confederates took, the former Confederates took over the city again. And this is when these Confederate monuments were erected after the foiling of Civil War. Um, So even an image I have in this box of a cigar roller, a guy named George Ray, his father was actually the captain of the Metropolitan Police during Reconstruction, and he was a free black man. And uh, and what's interesting about George and cigars is George is one of these guys who came. Uh, his family actually was from San Domingue, which is modern-day Haiti, but they made a pit stop in Cuba for a period of time, which a lot of families from uh, San Domingue did. The Spanish got a little paranoid after the Louisiana um, purchase, and pretty much they kind of asked these people, come on, y'all need to go ahead and leave. So around 1808, 1809, we had another influx of people from Cuba who were leftover refugees from San Domingue, and the Rays were some of those people. So uh, this family came over, and they were politically active. They were really interesting uh, people in the, involved in Creole um, society. And uh, anyway, grandson of uh, Bartholomew Ray, a guy named George Ray was a cigar roller, and he actually left New Orleans to go to Wisconsin. I what, know. Yeah, what, what, so, what was the motivation for that? Well, I was like, what the, what the hell is going on in uh, Milwaukee and Wisconsin? A major cigar industry in the 1880s and 1890s, 500-plus uh, factories. I had no idea about this, and I, I didn't understand it. But I bought a collection of about 40 photos of people all from the 7th Ward and Treme, and they're all Creoles of color, and they all stayed in Milwaukee. Now, George would return with his wife, Anita, um, back to St. Anne Street and uh, live out the rest of his days. I don't believe he had any children in New Orleans, but we do see this Creole population. So you say, well, you know, we don't see a lot of these people talking today. A lot of these people were dispersed, and they went. They mm-hmm. left with this great migration. Some of that was to do with cigars. What? They went to Ybor City. I was going to ask <laughs> if there's a, a t- connection to Tampa. Yes, oh. yes. And so, so I I acquired a bed recently by a free man of color named Dutre Barjon. He also was from Santa Mang. Had uh, he was known as the Candy Man of New Orleans, not the horror movie Creepy Candy yeah. Man. 
But because he made just, just beautiful furniture that looked sweet and just delicious, and he was a free man of color, made some of the best beds, I mean, the best armoires, all this stuff that everybody really wanted in their house. And he was from Santa Mae. Um, well, anyway, his children, though, did inherit the business. But, of course, after the Civil War, there wasn't as much of a demand for this very expensive furniture, and people began to take on more practical jobs, such as cigar rolling, right? And we know George Osis, I think, had several hundred creoles of color working in his cigar factory on North Rampart, was it? Or Rampart Street. I don't remember, yeah, where yeah. his factory is located. I have a picture of that. If we could maybe add that in later. See, yeah, it's yeah. A beautiful yeah. building. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll put it in. Um, so, uh, and one of, uh, and some of them were uh, these barjons that uh, were cigar rollers. And uh, I was doing research on this bed I bought. And I found out that he had living descendants. I actually missed one uh, who was 90-some years old, still living in the Tampa area. And they had all moved there, two or three of uh, his children, um, for the cigar industry. And, of course, they had assimilated into Latin culture, which is not such a stretch when you're coming from Santa Mang. You may maybe made a pit stop in Cuba. And we look at Cuba and we look at these places. They have Afro influences in the music and the food and everything. So it's very similar. I mean, Louisiana is, is Cuba, it, uh, was Cuba, except for it was acquired by the United States yeah, yeah. and, you know, had a little uh, French flair to it. So I like the saying that New Orleans is considered the northernmost Caribbean city. True. It's and, true, right? Yeah. Yeah. And there are elements of truth to that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you walk, and I don't, you know, not to get too sci fi or whatever. But I feel like when you walk the streets of New Orleans, you know, you'll hear a phantom drum. You'll hear a drum in the distance. You don't know if that's that's a guy really just knocking on that drum, trying to get that little $8 or $5, whatever he's trying to get, or if that's, you know, a ghost from beyond. I feel like the city's so dense still with so much history, and 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 uh, it's obviously very haunted, right. if you will, but it's also it's haunted with history. Are you into that? You I like try not to be into that because it kind of scares me. But I also try to be into that, so I'm not so scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my wife likes that stuff. And uh, when we first started dating, we went to the Myrtles Plantation and all of this, which was one of these haunted places. And we've gone to several haunted tours in New Orleans. But yeah, I find it fascinating. I do believe somewhat in it. Yeah. Yeah. What's uh scary? What's one of the scary stories you remember or haunted stories? Oh, uh, I don't. I don't New know. Orleans. Uh, in New Orleans, I don't know. Uh, I, I I mean, obviously, there's a lot of weird stuff that's happened. Tragic. And crazy uh, stuff. Um, I'm not gonna really. I won't share my own personal right. ghost stories, but I do believe that there. Have, I do believe the end. Have you ever had a? I have supernatural. Yeah, but this is a cigar, not whiskey. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well said. Maybe next podcast. So we had we had a guest uh, on our first episode, Greyhawk, who he he kind of divulged some of like his his practice in, in I guess the other world. It was it was pretty cool. Uh, very interesting character. So, um, but anyway, so kind of talking back to the Creole life and look, you can not answer if you don't want, but like, what do you think of Anne Rice's depiction? Like in, in the interview with the vampire, I don't know if they really kind of focus on, on Creole culture, Sure, but I, I don't know. I just, I, I found it, I just found it very fascinating. Her, her depiction of like new Orleans way back when. Are we know? referring to the recent TV show? Both. Or- Okay, so because I, I saw both, yeah, yeah. I like Anne Rice. I know she's passed now. I I like her work, 
and I liked the original uh, movie, even though it had Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise <laughs> yeah. in it. But you actually forget that in about three minutes because I think the story was so compelling mm-hmm. and the characters were so well-written that you forget who you're watching and you become engulfed in it. I liked the new show a lot. I did too. I found too. it interesting, and especially that there was a twist that was taking place kind of in that uh, Storyville era and Jim That's Crow, right. but it's Jim Crow era New Orleans, which is segregated, strange, dark times after the Civil War. Um, and I found that interesting, and I found that approach interesting. I think Anne Rice uh, tried her best to be historically accurate. Um, she wrote a book called The Feast of All Saints, which talked about Creoles of color and talked about um, some and, and touched on some of these stereotypes. Uh but I think that her intentions are pure, but she referred to some of these, used these books from the end of the 19th century and early 20th century as sources, and a lot of those are filled with bad information. Uh-huh. But I think, her, I think her intentions were pure. And at the end of the day, she writes about vampires. So, I mean, let's just, yeah. I mean, it's about vampires. It's entertainment, so it's fine. Yeah. I like Anne Rice. So. Yeah, there's supposed to be a little suspension of, of, of yeah. disbelief here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just stretch it a little bit. I mean, look, if Louis can fly, whatever. You know, <laughs> they two men like that could walk into an opera house and the black guy wouldn't get escorted out. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I'll I'll suspend that. Man, talking about you're talking about the New Orleans or the French opera house? Yeah. 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 And I wish that structure was around. It's beautiful. And what happened? It, it got burnt in a fire? It burned, I believe, right? I, I don't remember exactly when, maybe in nineteen late teens, nineteen eighteen or so. Yeah. After, actually, let me just open this box. Let's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. Let's no, just let's open go to the box. this box again. First of all, you, you you wrote a little bit about this. I'm bumping oh, into yeah. microphones here about this uh, company before, right? Oh yeah, La Belle Creole from okay. Simon Hernshine. Yes, exactly. Yep. And uh, so let's open this up. Here, I'll let you. Oh, it's all right. Nothing is too fragile. So here we go. We know this. Yeah. Speaking of Creoles, so people who don't. No, uh, Simon Hernshine, and I, and I know a little bit about this because I co-wrote an article in Where You At in January of 2007 about the cigar history in New Orleans, you know, over 100 years ago. And Simon Hernshine was the biggest manufacturer. In fact, at one point in the 1890s, he was con- like he was he was credited with, with producing the most cigars. Wow. Um, and this is his famous brand, La Belle Creole. So we'll get a better shot. Beautiful label. I love that label. Yeah. So the, the, the Creole Bell. Right. So do you have any insights into this brand? I mean. Or any of the story, any anecdotes about it? Yeah, just looking at the I box was, art, very traditional. I think it was definitely, uh, you know, marketing to the idea of these mm-hmm. beautiful Creoles. And I'm not necessarily sure that this is supposed to be a Creole of color. Again, this term was used widely also by this kind of aristocratic uh, white society with French and Spanish and sometimes some even black blood that they didn't talk about. So, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I love the brand and uh, I love the design. I've seen this so many times. I was happy to find this box. Yeah. No, and I love just the the very traditional artwork. There's an inscription I couldn't make out either. It says something. Let's see. I attributed that to a date, I think, like, but I don't know if, the, you know, they put marbles in there or something. And yeah, I can't, even, I can't even read that. Hmm. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people passed down these old cigar boxes. Yeah. They made good little storage pieces. 
Could have been grandma, grandpa's socks in these. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. We don't know. Right. <laughs> I know. It could be anything. So let's open the mystery bit. Let's see yeah, what's going on. Yeah, so what's next in here? So let's see. Let's Ooh, little Perique. A little Perique. Open that up, man. You got to smell it. Wait, I think I remember this. Okay, so for people who don't know, Perique is a tobacco grown in Louisiana. St. James in St. James Parish. It's actually considered a what we call a condiment tobacco. So you really wouldn't want to smoke this straight. It's no. it's too pungent. Let me smell. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, so you would treat it like salt or pepper in a dish. So it was used primarily in the pipe tobacco world. It's been used in cigarettes. What was that old brand? Well, Picayune. Picayune cigarettes. Picayune. And yeah, now yeah. in American Spirits, I think they use right. it. Right. So they saved, uh, just to give insight for people. Oh, I remember this company. Yeah, this was a while ago. River Road Tobacco. That's cool. Well, thank you for bringing that. This brings up memories. Uh, yeah, I don't even. I don't think they're made anymore. But I couldn't find any more. But I snatched them up when I found them. Um, and so we have some other kind of just interesting uh, cigar stuff. We're talking about Opera House, right? Oh, cool. So this is Adele, uh, uh, actually Adelina Patti, who is a really well known um, opera singer, and she uh, frequented the uh, French Opera House. Speaking of which, let's see what else we got in here. That's cool. So what what box would, would that have? So this stored? said, let, let me make sure I'm telling. The truth I'm here. sure it's little cigars. Really, okay. Smoke uh, these cigars. I'm not sure. This is in offering the cigar to the smoking public. We ask special attention to its unrivaled quality, and we beg to assure them that it is beyond doubt the finest five cent smoke ever presented for their favor. Wow. That's a hell of a sell, man. I know. Great care has wait. There's more. Great care has been there's taken more. in its preparation, and no pains have been spared to make it a royal five cent smoke. Purchasers to avoid buying imitations will notice that each box has on it factory number one thousand. They were worried about uh, fakes even back then. Third District, yep. New York. That's cool. So, but that's uh, that was I think found in New. What, what this country needs is a good five cent cigar. Exactly. I forgot said who said that. that. I forget. Uh, Mark Twain or Samuel Clemens. Uh, I thought it was a politician, but I could it be wrong. Could be. Could be. One of, one of those famous cigar store kind of anecdotes. Smoke opera. That's very cool. And yeah, I forgot to mention. I saw the 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 tax stamp on mm -hmm. the bottom of this box. Okay. It said factory number five eleven. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know if like they actually chronologically attributed like the amount of factories. You know, with 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 how actually how many factories there were in the city at the time. But that's a lead. We yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, and it could be. be I mean, there were literally hundreds of cigar factories at right. one point, and and a factory could have just been a one person operation, so that would classify as a factory. So they were all these huge buildings, five story oh. buildings. So we were talking about the French Opera House. Oh, cool. So this is old French Opera House, uh, corner of Bourbon and Toulouse Street. This uh, and it goes on to talk about between the acts, little cigars, all tobacco, no paper. So this is that quick smoke. This is yeah. that nub before the nub. Yeah, yellow quick smoke. Yep. Like, oh, damn, I really hate this opera. Let me hurry up and get a little little something, and then get back to it. So I love that. That's uh, cool. So that's another little cool piece of New Orleans tobacco history. So I've heard of that. The between the acts is uh -huh. that the name of the brand or the size? Because I feel like I've heard that term. I in our industry over the years. So maybe it's to, uh, you know, uh, differentiate those smaller format cigars. Right. So I'm not sure if that is the brand or something that they used uh, as a kind of like a, a calling of oh, small cigars. Yeah, yeah. It does say factory number 98. So, again, there's, a, there's that factory number. 
and uh, and something else kind of blocked out. And also, it mentions Adelina Patti made her American debut at the Royal oh. uh, uh, at the uh, French Opera House, and she was a big deal. And there's a recording of her. Wow. Um, unfortunately, it's in her later years, but still a beautiful voice. So, so these cigars were made in New York, but it was promoting the French Opera House in New Orleans, right? And promoting her, her especially. Yeah. So yeah, and I think a lot That's of the cool. some of this stuff was shipped to New York because we'll, well speaking of New York, here we go. So George Houses had factories supposedly in New York as well. Now, like you were saying, you know the definition of factory. I don't think ne- necessarily meant the modern equivalent of a Manhattan skyscraper. It could have been three guys uh, boxing cigars, and that was a factory or distributing or doing some aspect of that. Yeah. But this is a, a Victorian cabinet card, um, so probably what eighteen eighties. And it's George Elsis, and it's New Orleans. And on the back, there's more. Take a look. Yeah, that's cool. So, what do you mean, Victorian cabinet card? Oh, what, what is that? I mean? should I should say I said cabinet card. Um, I should say advertising card. They're essentially oh. like larger format business cards. Oh, what? Okay, and that was a thing. Yeah, and a cabinet card is actually these are cabinet cards. They call them cabinet cards. There, and I keep hitting the microphone. Sorry. Oh, these good. are cabinet cards, um, and these are pictures. And this was taken on Frenchman Street. This is one of the most bizarre ones I have. I have hundreds of these. I collect New Orleans photographs. And these guys are obviously, you know, they, they're, in the, they're in the industry. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is what industry we don't know. I think they definitely serve drinks and gamble and one smoking a cool cigar. Yeah, it looked like they were, they, they were getting in trouble. They were up to something. I would See love the gun to. and the, the alcohol. And now on Frenchman Street, right there, you knew there was just there was stuff going on. Yeah. Dallier is a famous photographer. And then this is George Ray, and he's smoking a cigar in this. Oh, yeah. And this is the gentleman who was born in New Orleans, whose family had come from San Domingue. Um, and uh, his father was actually uh, the captain of the Metropolitan Police during Reconstruction. Um, some things happened, didn't work out. Uh, I'll, let, I'll let y'all Google. It's yeah. fascinating. But so he went to Wisconsin to join his first cousin. Um, in cigar rolling, but he did end up coming back to New Orleans and uh, lived the rest of his days on St. Anne Street. Okay. Right in the heart of the quarter? Not St. Anne outside the quarter? I think it's outside. It okay. would have been more outside Marigny. Okay. Um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, um, but yeah. That's cool. Man, look at that, look at that fur. They were doing okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But you could tell they had moved up. You know, somewhere yeah. cold. That wasn't New Orleans. But I love the cigar. Remember we discussed this where it's kind of, a, is that a figurado uh, a shape? Or what were the classic shapes that we would have seen? So back then, mm-hmm. the what we would call the double perfecto, where perfecto. it basically tapers on, on both ends. Okay. Right? So it looks like a little, uh, I don't know how to describe it, almost like an eye. Yeah. Like the, the shape of an eye. That was one of the most popular formats back then. And they were small. So a lot of people... Supposedly, four out of five men smoke cigars in what we call the golden age, which would have been about 1880 up until like 1920, 1930. And four out of five, 80 percent of men smoke cigars. So it was a big, it was a, it was a big deal uh, back then. So, you know, people talk about the cigar boom of the 90s and this resurgence lately, like the last few years, especially with the pandemic. Still, the 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 golden age killed it in terms of cigars produced and people smoking and enjoying cigars. Especially versus cigarettes. So I, I did do a little research earlier, and I saw that where they were like, you know, half a mi- uh what was the numbers? I think like 500 million or something mm-hmm. cig- uh, cigarettes made, but six like billion 
cigars mm-hmm. uh, worldwide. So that mm-hmm. was pretty tremendous too. And I pulled some, we don't have to get too much into this, but just some of those uh, interesting. Yeah. So in 1880, there was a half a billion cigars consumed versus six billion, or excuse me, half a billion cigarettes consumed in 1880. Six billion cigars. Yeah. That's why I, I kind of laugh when these reports come out every year, like, oh, we broke import numbers. Well, maybe that's the import, but like cigars consume, especially during the golden age, exceed, far exceeded those import numbers today. Right. Um, and, and a lot of them were domestically produced, right? You literally had dozens, if not hundreds, of cigar factories in most major cities. Right. And, and cities that you wouldn't even think about, like places in Wisconsin or Ohio, uh, Illinois, right. just all over. I mean, it was all over the country. Right. And, and I think I think it's interesting because it's kind of like, I think there's obviously a culture with cigars now. But I think to New Orleans, uh, the culture in New Orleans lent itself to loving cigars, kind of being bon vivants, loving beautiful things. Yeah. And I think a lot of that came with kind of the high mortality rate. Uh, I mean, always, you know, hurricanes, yellow fever, bad stuff. So they lived life to the fullest. And I think uh, a good cigar was something to look forward to um, in the in the morning, afternoon, and evening. And just like a good cigar was something to look forward to, you know, the next day with your coffee. I think you know these mm-hmm. people love that life, and I think that was their their uh, their their joy to be. You know. Yeah, yeah. So. For sure. No, I think that's definitely relevant. You know, especially times even today, right? People who enjoy cigars. They usually work hard or, or have a lot of stress. This is a good respite, you know. Even if it's temporary, it's an affordable, attainable luxury. Right. You know, it's it's. A, I can see why it, it was popular back then and even today. But um, lifestyle no, awesome. accessory. Mm-hmm. It's like a lifestyle accessory because I think a lot of two people too smoke today because of these ideas of these of the past of a different. Uh, uh, they say a simpler time, much more complicated in some ways, but also simpler in the sense of a man would just be able to light up a cigar and enjoy it at a train station, which obviously today you're going to have a problem lighting up a cigar at a lot of places. But I do believe that a place like New Orleans, um, which has historical ties to cigars and Louisiana in general, I mean, even these Indians, I mean, the, the Native Americans, mm-hmm. uh, these uh, Choctaw, Chickasaw, they were dealing with tobacco. I think there should be cigar districts where you should be allowed to smoke this uh, in homage. Sorry, is I that like far? No, is that no, crazy? No, I like that. No, I love that. Because cigar I think it district. makes sense. Right. Uh, well, Ybor City really treasures their cigar history. And you see that culture definitely put on a pedestal there. So I think that's pretty cool. And and it seems the, the town of Tampa really gets behind that. So I, I, I would love to see that in New Orleans, especially with our history of, of cigar production. I think I think it would make sense. In fact, the last great painting I found, I, I collect paintings. Is uh, I'm not sure if I, if you know that, but uh, but was in Tampa area. It was a portrait painting of a woman, um, painted in 1852 New Orleans, and it had ended up there. And my speculation was that this is probably the ancestor of somebody who moved turn of the century in that area. From Louisiana to Tampa hmm. and all that, um, she's back in Louisiana now. Oh, I've had it restored cool. and everything, but um, so and that's and that's what a lot of what I do is I do a lot of learning through material culture, but I do a lot of sharing through material culture. Yeah. 
And, uh, and I, I love that, especially with your Instagram profile is awesome with, with the pictures you. that you share. Can we get into that about the art, sure. the, the art collecting? Like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. So, you know, if you want to talk about the, and, and I'm probably butchering the name, so please correct me, the, the Belazar, Belazar painting. Can you, you want to shed some light on that? Because sure. I thought that was really, really intriguing. So the Belazar painting is a really interesting painting that um, I became aware of about probably 10 plus, probably a little over 10 years ago. And it was a painting that was given to the New Orleans Museum of Art, I think around 1972, and they deaccessioned it. What does that um, mean? Huh. That is a fancy word for they decided to sell it. They didn't need it. Museums do that. I think a lot of people make this or believe that grandma's favorite silverware, favorite dress, favorite bed, cigar humidor will be safe at a museum. Not necessarily. What? Museums do get rid of stuff for funding, and they decide to get rid of this painting. And the painting appeared uh, to uh, it's a portrait of three children. Okay. Of course, there was a shadow in the background, but it was a picture of three children. Um, later on, uh, we would find out that there was actually four children. One of them was, uh, uh, three, there was three white children and a, and a black enslaved, um, boy who we would identify, um, thanks to myself and a, a, a researcher as Belazaire. So, um, this painting, I, it always stayed in my mind, uh, since I first saw it and I'd been looking for it for a very long time. And I was on the New Orleans Museum of Art. Um, a sessions board. A sessions is when you buy things, right? You're, okay. So, and uh, and uh, I got a lead thanks to Instagram. Wow. I mentioned, I talked about this, and a friend of mine said, hey, I saw that painting a little while ago. So what do you mean? How long ago? Ten years ago. I said, well, look, I need to find it, man. He's like, it was ten years ago. I was like, that's okay. So I. long story short, it took me a little while, um, but I was able to contact uh, the person who had acquired it, um, I was hoping that it would end up in the New Orleans Museum of Art. For whatever reason, they uh, were not interested. Uh -huh. um, I think they weren't interested because it was kind of uh, kind of embarrassing um, the the situation about this. I mean, there's more on that coming out later. But in short, um, they did not want to acquire it, so I acquired it. I wasn't planning on spending that much money on a Wednesday, but <laughs> sometimes you just have to do it. So uh, I got the painting, and uh, and I broke out in a sweat because I'm like, we got to find out more about this. At this time, we didn't know who any of the people were in the picture. The boy Belazare had been uncovered uh, in a in a previous restoration, but um, it, it, there still needed to be work. So we had it reconserved, which is where your painting is brought to a conservator studio. And uh, through the use of solvents, uh, we uh, they remove grime, funk, old varnish, and in this case, touch-up paint that was used to cover over this boy. And so we had to figure out who this boy was, who the other two uh, children, or who the bo other boy was and the other two children were. And we were able to do that um, because we had a breakthrough when I found a 1972 Picayune article where the woman talks about donating it to the New Orleans Museum of Art. She even talks about there's an enslaved boy covered over. She said that? She said that. It's in the files. So she knew that Belazar was, was covered. Was she didn't know over? his name. She didn't know his name, oh. but she knew that there was an enslaved boy who was covered over. 
And it was kind of funny because she didn't know who her own relatives were in there uh, either. They had kind of forgotten by 1972 who this was. They knew they were relatives, but we were able to pretty easily, I shouldn't say pretty easily, but quickly find that out once we were able to confirm it had descended in this lady's family. So in short, New Orleans Museum of Art never displayed it. They kept it in a basement, 72, 82, 92, till about 2000, and I want to say four. I don't have my dates on right now. And they sold it at Christie's. Christie's didn't really do what they should have done, in my opinion, which was, you know, scratched away. It looked a little more into this because it was clearly expressed in the museum files that there was an enslaved boy. Um, And in short... You know, now oh. the world knows about Belazare. He was on cover of the um, Picayune, which is a big deal. I mean, this is a newspaper that historically used to run runaway slave ads. So to see that uh, a boy named Belazare is now being celebrated on the cover of the newspaper is a big deal. And he was on the Advocate cover, and he was on the cover of Antique Magazine. And I recently went to the uh, New York Winter Show, Antique Show, and talked a little bit about him. And so it's been amazing to be able to share that story and uh, get inside. And there's potentially a uh, forthcoming little uh, mini documentary coming out about that. So. Oh, cool. So you're, that's in the, in the works, if you can talk it's about it. It's in the it. works. I mean, yeah. Cool. It, yeah, so nice. I'm excited about that. And I've participated in a podcast uh, on it, too, for uh, Curious Objects at the Magazine Antiques. There's that plug right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's just, cool. Yeah. that right there. <laughs> so well, that's cool. So do do we know or do you know now who these three children were plus we do. there? What what's the story with them? So the story is really not as uh pleasant as we would like. We know that all of those children died before adulthood and that Belazare was the only one to live to be an adult. Unfortunately, the painting was painted in 1837 and 1856 Christmas Eve. He was sold to a gentleman named Lesanne Becknell. And Lizanne Becknell had a plantation, uh, which is in St. John, which is Evergreen Plantation. And it's the most intact plantation. You've seen it in such movies as Django and uh, a bunch of, bunch of movies. Uh, oh. it's, it's one of those well-known. And Belazare uh, was enslaved there. And we don't know what happened to him after, um, I believe, 1861. We, we don't know. I'm hopeful mm. that he was able to uh, live until the end of the Civil War, Emancipation Proclamation, and, you know, it's ongoing research. We're hoping something will turn up, but it's yeah. kind of sad because we know that he was born in uh, in New Orleans, and uh, interesting enough, he was born in the household of a, a, of a Spanish guy, a Trevino, um, mm. who was in the city. So, you know, we had, a, again, that Spanish connection in New Orleans is deep, and he was yeah. born in the French Quarter, um, but I would love to know what happened to him, and we still don't know. So it's a lot of detective work that goes on in your world. And a lot of detective work, yep. So, like, what kind of resources? I mean, do you start with Google? Like, how do you, like, try to find this information? Well, with this was uh, was really put me to a bunch of, uh, I mean, I really had to kind of stretch out. I, I had to, you know, hire somebody um, to assist with this to do archival work. But, like I said, the biggest breakthrough was finding that 1972 Picayune article because we knew the family who had donated it, but we had no idea if they didn't just buy it off the side of the road. When we found out it had descended in her maternal line, that is to say her mother's line, Hmm. we were able to say, oh, well, we know who she is. Let's look who her mother is. Okay, well, where were they in 1830? 
that's when this painting was made. We're somewhere there right here. They're at the Montleon Hotel, except for it wasn't the Montleon Hotel. It was a three-story, brand spanking new, beautiful townhouse. And so the side of the Montleon Hotel is where Belazare lived. Uh, funny Whoa. enough, I drank uh, a few cocktails for Belazare at the Montleon and then stumbled my way to the Ogden Museum for a champagne toast where it was on display there. Um, oh, cool. And so that was kind of one of those monumental moments. Mm-hmm. I'm fondling a book at the Montleon Hotel. And, Come in, another one. You know, one of these. It's a very, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I'm sure the tourists were like, man, this place is so weird. New Orleans is great, full of eccentric. Yeah. You know, and I was having a real moment there. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of that show on PBS. What is it, Finding Your Roots? Okay, yeah. Like, just the amount, like, to me, what's amazing is how did these guys, like, find this information on a person and their family and especially if like the person they're uh, who's the subject they don't they don't really have any paperwork or anything they don't know their 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 family line you know right i mean we're lucky in louisiana that um a lot of records were uh made and kept um and uh, a lot of that was cuz of the catholic church as far as births deaths and of course people were quite litigious back then so they would sue their own mother for literally in a cashless society people were always borrowing money so we have a lot of records of people uh you know um suing people and but we were able we were able to get a lot of information from that so we were able to realize through some of this family the Frey family's problems financial problems they actually lost possession of property back then property was enslaved people so Bellows there and his mother actually went on the auction block um but the family was able to go over there and get them back for a time before they would eventually have to sell uh, Belisere. And someone has said, and it was kind of funny, that this uh, gentleman, Frederick Frey, who was the uh, owner of Belisere and uh, the children who are in the portrait are his, are his children, the white children, um, was like the Annabellum Bernie Madoff. He owed money owed money to everybody <laughs> and just was like oh, constantly man. moving money and and I'm not sure if that's a fair characterization. I'm sure if I was a descendant, I probably wouldn't love that. Yeah. But it makes for a hell of a, a Netflix zinger. Yeah. Annabellum, Bernie Madoff, consigns, yeah. or, you know, or whatever. I'm intrigued. Yeah. Yeah, it's intriguing. Netflix, Whoa. call me. What the fuck? Yeah. What exactly. took so long? I'm waiting for y'all. <laughs> well, we'll hope that our two viewers will uh, help promote yeah, this, man. you know? That's good. Dude, I'm cheap. You just got to bring me your dinner and give me a cigar, man, and I will yeah. talk. Yeah. Just wind me up. That's All it. Right. So. So going back to the world of, of art collecting, sure. so what's you, – you've, you've kind of conveyed it, but what, what are some of your motivations for, for art collecting? I mean, is it purely commercial game? Is it historical preservation? Is it a combination of both? I mean, I didn't really even realize that museums, are, are I guess, are a business, right, that they will unload some of their stock, you know, for whatever reason. What, what are your motivations for art collecting? Well, one of my – motivations and 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 what really started me was a lack of representation of what I felt was my family history and some of that were the free creoles of color and some mm-hmm. of that were enslaved creoles and enslaved people of color and I felt like at a time when I began really getting serious about this around 2013 I didn't see any sort of reflection of this important history now everybody's you know they woke up they're woke they're woke AF, right? Some of them you wish would just go back to sleep because they don't know what they're talking about. But uh, I'm being mean, but I'm also kind of being comical about it. But you have a lot of museums now who are just 
trying to catch on to this bandwagon. So they're trying to snatch up all of this material culture. And uh, so it's a weird time now huh. um, because before it was very difficult to um, be able to, to uh, get them to care. So here I was collecting this material culture, searching for it. And they were kind of like, oh, okay, well, do you have anything related to the stuff we want? And I would use their stuff as leverage. I'm like, yeah, I'll loan you that candlestick um, belonging to a certain aristocrat. Uh, this is just an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you put this on display as well. Now mm. I don't have to do that. Now they call me begging for pieces, and it's a weird, weird thing. But this began with, you know, I heard that I had an ancestor who had a portrait made, and I looked everywhere for it. I wanted to find it desperately. I knew that a branch of the family had gone to Tampico, Mexico, um, had ended up in Matamoros and Vera Veracruz. In fact, tomorrow um, um, uh, they're going to be filming me for a documentary that's talking about Creoles of color who um, – who went over to Matamoros and all of this, and uh, who went to Tampico. And, so this is uh, in Mexico. This is in Mexico. Yeah. Creoles, Creoles, again. Wow. Yeah, we're talking about early on. I mean, in the early, late, eight, eight, late, late 1800s, for sure, in 1820s and 30s, we see migrations of these people leaving for better opportunities. Okay. Um, in short, so I went out looking for this one painting of an ancestor, and I found out there were actually three paintings of this guy. Uh, one of them had ended up in Mexico. It's now back. Um, one was in a basement in California. Uh, it's now at the Ogden Museum. I own it, but it's on loan. And the other was destroyed in a fire, unfortunately, in the 1970s. But so in looking for proof of my own family's history and all of this, uh, I was able to begin collecting and learning through collecting even things like this. And so I became aware of, like, even the connection of cigars. I had no idea about that. I liked cigars, but now it makes sense. Maybe it's cultural memory. It's maybe because my family likes cigars because yeah. they were involved in some ways in this industry. It's in your blood. It's in my blood. My That's um, awesome. ancestor, a lady named Marie Therese Coincoin, born in slave, was able to secure a Spanish grant to grow tobacco. Um, and she grew tobaccos. Success, I'd say successfully because she wasn't hugely successful in the growing of tobacco in Natchitoches, but she was able to turn over a crop and she was able to sell it. Wow. And so I find that fascinating because I, no one told me that. Grandma didn't tell me that. Yeah. You know? No, that's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's just, yeah, discovering that those family historical stories, I mean, it's just, it's really intriguing. And I want to inspire other students to, 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 to uh, discover their family history. And that's the, what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to, I think it's easier to get into this. I've always been someone who needed proof. So this material culture, when you look at a painting and you're face-to-face -face with history, I think it's inspiring. I think people are like, this is real, yeah. okay? It's not in a book. It's not in black and white. Mm. It's real. It's right there. Yeah. So I think that for our generation, especially, we're visual and we're very, you know, we need it there. So you discussed uh, your your social media presence, its impact. Mm -hmm. You you've discovered some some information about art through Instagram, or like how how can you kind of expand on that? Like how Instagram helped you? So so I have about twenty nine thousand followers on Instagram, um, but even when I had less followers on Instagram, I'd have people just say, "Hey, Jeremy, what do you think about this? I saw this in a um, antique shop in Houston. You should go check it out." So I, got, I began to 
inspire people to look for these items. And, wow. and occasionally they would tell me where to look, but also I was able to connect with people. Yeah. So um, even through social media, um, recently I've reconnected with cousins who disappeared in the 1880s and 1890s from Louisiana, um, crossed the color line, so to speak, and have reached back out because of my presence on social media. Also, because of my presence on social media, I've had the opportunities to consult with institutions and museums um, and help them uh, facilitate ways to obtain pieces of material culture ethically, okay, and with the right narrative. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of, in the past, what I would say was looting and taking of, of important pieces from people of color um, and also a bunch of other whatever. So that's yeah. some, uh, social media has just really opened the doors. The internet yeah. in general has opened our door, uh, the doors and our eyes, maybe sometimes too wide. Yeah. But, you know, that's why we smoke the cigars. That's right. <laughs> and drink the whiskey, it lowers it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a guest you were talking about family records, or at least in Louisiana, there's a guest I want to have on. His name's Sid Gray. I don't know if you've heard the yeah. name. I think I've mentioned him to you. He's a historical architect. Yeah. And he's a hero. He uh So you know you know Sid? I have never met that guy, but I respect him because I know he has saved so many important buildings. Right. There's one on Highland Road that he saved, the Petit Pierre house. That is like my favorite house in the world. And yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> yeah, he's literally moved buildings. Yeah. Like and trans to save them. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I want to get him on the show. Yeah. But I remember him telling me that fortunately for Louisiana, the Spanish were master record keepers. And I guess that also makes sense with the with the Catholic Church mm-hmm. that they were able to just maintain all these records. So it might be easier for people to if they're looking for their ancestors in Louisiana, they might have a, a leg up. Right, and even and even people uh, of African descent, it's harder, okay, because mm-hmm. their ancestors, um, many of them were in, uh, most of them were enslaved, and so the only records a lot of times you have is an estate inventory, or a sale, so you don't have them suing their mother, or their brother like everyone else has, or you don't have them getting into this sort of trouble in a mention here or there. Um, but there are people, there's a, a wonderful historian uh, and genealogist named Yael Gordon who, uh, who, who does this, who, can, who is telling these stories and will help you uh, find uh, your ancestors, especially if you're in Louisiana, because of that connection you were saying. Spanish got a bad rep. I mean, everybody wants to talk about their lazy this and this in Louisiana. The Spanish were a little laissez-faire, but they were not... They were, they were good at what they were doing. They were the better of the evils mm. because they did not believe slavery was a permanent condition. And when I say that, they allowed for coartacion, which was a, a, a way for enslaved people to get an independent appraisal of their value and to work and pay a third party. It doesn't matter if their master said, no, I want 10000 for you. It doesn't matter. This guy says, if I pay $800 and he's going to hold the money, then I'm free. So the Spanish implemented things like that. They did not see uh, mm-hmm. slavery as a permanent condition. They were still enslavers, by the way. Let's not let's right. not soften right. this totally. Okay, but they did not see slavery as a permanent condition, and they it was better under the Spanish, and we see the population of free people flourish under them. Um, and, of course, there's records in Cuba today, okay, because the high court was in Cuba, 
um, pertaining to Louisiana and pertaining to my ancestors one, uh, and, and everything else. And I've even heard some cousins uh, reference records in Cuba of where we were able to find out information. Wow. So still a connection. So, so th- those records are still in Cuba, some of those? Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, hopefully. Now we, we don't know what the state know. affairs are. Yeah. I mean, uh, if they're not mildewed. Yeah. yeah, but I think they're yes, they're still there. There are there are definitely still records, and uh, pertaining to Louisiana's uh, dealings in uh, Cuba. Wow. Yep. So, what um, what advice would you give to someone if they want to enter the art world space of stay, collecting? Stay away from this world. Yeah. yeah. Don't 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 get no. I'm kidding. Um, I think uh, it depends what you're you're after, and it depends what you're trying to do. I mean, I have a very specialized interest. I mean, my focus is really 19th century, 18th century portraiture. Okay. That is to say, paintings of people, oil on canvas. That's very specific. And then when we get into Southern or Louisiana, that's even more specific. It's very niche. Huh? Very yeah. niche. There's 20 people, and only about 18 of them like me. Uh-huh. Uh, in this thing, but that's a pretty good number yeah. considering. Okay, so don't all right, but but. But honestly, honestly, um, the number is growing because of, like I said, because of people's interest now in representation. But I would recommend people become educated, educate themselves. Don't be intimidated by PhDs. Um, these people in the museum world, there's some very helpful people. There's some great resources. Historic New Orleans Collection is a great resource. Yeah, yeah they really are. They helped me on that article. Good uh, people yeah. there. They care. That mm-hmm. matters. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we have other institutions in this uh, state who also matter or who also are, are helpful. Um, they have some good people at the Louisiana State um, Museum, still a good, great registrar there and, and staff members. Um, but I would just tell people uh, don't be intimidated. Do your own research. And just because an expert says you're wrong doesn't mean you're wrong. Because mm-hmm. I can tell you, if I could go back and tell myself, I'd be like, dude, just – Walk around a little cocky, keep your head up, and uh, eventually it'll shake out. Because I've been told I've been wrong a lot of times before I was told, shit, man, you were right. So I think that's the game with anything, though. Walk around with a little confidence, but always know that every day is a chance to learn more, and you don't know everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, good advice. Hopefully. Yeah. So going back to the cigar, Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on, on this blend? Yeah, I really like this cigar. And uh, it's it's it may just be the conversation and the setting, mm-hmm. but it's very mellow. But it also has plenty of flavor for me. I like medium to full body cigars. When I smoke cigars every day, I had a much more diversified palate. Yeah. But now that I don't smoke as many cigars, I kind of want the wow factor every time. This matches that. This has a wow factor to it. But, um, and sometimes I think that's what we talk about. Like, I'm like, oh, you know, y'all give me this. Oh, check this, try this, try this. And I, unfortunately, I don't think my palate is, is uh, as impressed by subtle tea anymore because I don't smoke as many. Hmm. So every, it's like, it's like you know, if, you, if you've been eating, like, vegetables, you want something, you know, ridiculous, steak, potato, yeah, over yeah, the top. Yeah. I want dessert. And I feel like every time I want a cigar, I want a feast. Yeah. Um, but this is a beautiful smoke, and I'd smoke another one of these, no problem. And uh, it's got plenty of flavor. It's not too harsh. It draws nicely. I like it. What are some of your favorite drinks to pair with a cigar, alcohol or non-alcohol? Uh, you know, as far as drinks, I will drink a regular Coca-Cola. I don't drink soft drinks um, outside of really a cigar. 
I don't drink any soft drinks. I drink a lot of water. Um, I don't mind a nice uh, scotch. I prefer scotch to bourbon. I know everybody is on the bourbon yeah, bandwagon, bourbon. and I agree. Some of it's killer. It's awesome. Pappy Van Winkle was awesome when it was $60. It's not <laughs> so cool now that it's no. 2500 it's still good. I mean, but it's not. You know, I, I well, I don't. I haven't found anything that's twenty five hundred dollar tasting good. But, yeah, <laughs> but, but I mean, I get it. I get it. But uh, so I like I like scotch, man. I'm and I'm not that sophisticated when it comes to that. I don't believe. I mean, um, I like Macallan and I like a Macallan twelve and I like a Macallan eighteen and I like a Glimmerangie. Um, sometimes some of the more exotic port cask or. Or something like that. I find that interesting, but I I tend to uh, go more towards Highland scotches. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, what about your favorite cigar size? Do you have one? I don't think so. And um, I think when I smoked more, depending on what I was doing or the time, uh, I I would tend to favor one or not. But now it's kind of like now that I, you know, when I'm lucky because I have a wife now and all these responsibilities. I might get a scar once every two weeks. Um, I, you know, whatever the guys at Havana Port tell me is what I go with. Yeah. But, and they haven't, they haven't disappointed really. So, so. <laughs> good. So I appreciate that. So we're uh, getting near the end of our interview here or conversation really. So I'm trying to do something new, okay. uh, like a regular segment. So we'll call it the final puff. Three questions, rapid fire. Number one, Tabasco or Crystal? Oh. <laughs> and you can take time. Tabasco. Tabasco, okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Favorite vacation destination? Oh, I don't know. Ah, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't know if I have one, man. Okay. I mean, now I have a kid, so it's like Disney World because there's enough to do for adults and children, yeah. so I hate to say But it's got a lot going on. Okay? Yeah. So okay. I'll say Disney. Fair enough. The ideal person you would want to smoke a cigar with, alive or deceased. Oh God. Yeah, if you could smoke a cigar with anyone, who would it be? You put me on the spot. I can't even. Uh, I can't even. I would. Well, that's terrible. It would. Uh, fortunately, he had like some sort of complicated cancer. I think Val Kilmer is awesome. And I love his. Yeah, life. yeah. But if he was still smoking cigars or something like that, I would love to just sit yeah. down and talk uh, Val Kilmer. And also, just on a completely different side of the spectrum, I would like to just listen to John Mayer tell me about his misadventures with women while I drink and smoke cigars. <laughs> and I don't even have to talk. He would. Yeah. Ju- he don't have to bring a guitar or nothing. He'd just, just start, man. Oh, man. And I would just watch. I was like, yeah, and what about Jessica Simpson? You know, there's some like because I find him interesting. He's an interesting fella. He likes watches. I think he likes good scotch or did at one time. I wonder if he smokes cigars. I don't know, hmm. but he should. Yeah, but he probably can't because you know he's a singer. And yeah, there was that controversy with Nick. I think it was Nick Jonas when he was on the cover of Cigar Aficionado because he's a big cigar guy. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Jonas Brothers, right? I think it was Nick. Um, so when they featured him on the cover. Like all his fan base went in a fury. They're like, "Oh, well, you shouldn't be doing this. It's bad for you, this and that." And I was like, "Man, it's nothing wrong. It's not like a cigarette." So I was. bet you're right. Like there are probably some high-profile individuals that are closet cigar smokers, but they're afraid of like revealing that for fear of I don't know some social some sort of stigma with cigars. Yeah. You know, but I love the people who are high-profile, like uh, Steve Harvey. Yeah. He's very pro cigar. Michael Jordan, like they don't, they don't know. I would that. smoke a cigar with uh, Steve. I mean, I smoke a cigar with 
almost anyway, any of yeah. these guys yeah, yeah. who like cigars. But I was trying to think of somebody a little out the box. John Mayer would be out the box. Yeah, that sounds pretty. And fun. Val Kilmer is just kind of wild and cra- crazy. And I would, I, I think he would be a cool guy to just smoke a cigar. Unfortunately, I don't think he would be able to do it. But you understand what I'm right, saying, right, right. So. Well, cool, man. Well, uh, is there anything you want to impart to us before we wrap it up? No, I appreciate this. Um, it's y'all are one of my favorite cigar spots. Y'all are actually my favorite cigar spot, and uh, y'all always have great cigars, and they're well cared for, which is more important <laughs> sometimes, uh, or as important, I should say, yeah. um, because I think the care of the cigar, you know, goes a lot into the enjoyment of the cigar. So I appreciate that. No, thank you for the words. So, and thanks for coming out today. So, we'll, we'll, we'll love to have you back, you know, in the future. So, okay, keep us posted. Too. Okay. All right, buddy. Have a good right. night. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope you found today's conversation insightful and entertaining. If you enjoyed this episode and want to discover more episodes, check us out at thelifepro.com or any other major streaming platform. If you're interested about the cigars we smoked, you can visit us at shop.habanaport.com. Until the next cigar. Thank you.